the podcast for the real world meets the digital world as we explore the intersection of spatial computing and AI. Let's welcome our host, Andrew Ballard. Over to you, AB. Well, g'day. Welcome to episode three of Spatial. Yes, we're back and we are down by one, a different one this week. We are minus Violet, but we are plus William. William, g'day. Welcome back. How are you faring? Hi, thanks very much. I'm feeling much better. Appreciate the, uh, the, the short break to recover. Well done. Uh, great to have you back with us. Mirak, g'day. How are you? You're looking nice and relaxed. You've got the Mexican sombrero in the background. We really do need to convert from audio to a visual format soon. So Yeah, yeah. In, in actuality, we are snowed in here and it's very it's cold. Actually, so I'm just, you know, writing right, in the mood a little bit. Dreaming of Mexico. <laughs> And Helena, close to the beach, enjoying it, the, or the family's getting some good beach time in? They're all. Excellent. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, well, let's jump straight into News of the Week with a segment we call Fast Five. Fast Five. Mirak, over to you first. Homework is in, submitted. Top marks to you. Gold star. What, what do you have for us this week? Oh, uh, so this week I'd like to mention uh, an initiative that's coming out of Google and 33 robotics labs around the world. It's called RTX and it stands for Robotic Transformer X. And the, the, the big idea is that with the advancements in large language models and generative AI, you might expect similar kind of behavior from robots and, and that it will just translate, it's this intelligence will just translate to robotics and robotic manipulation. But that's not really the case because a large language model typically is based off large amount of data scraped off the internet. And it's pretty much a compressor or uh, autocorrect on steroids. So it's predicting the next most likely word expression whatever and it goes the same with uh with generative ai that can generate visuals or even music same kind of principle uh this doesn't really work with robots because robots need to manipulate their own body they need to have this this um, this this uh image of you know their own configuration somewhere so they can they like like what like humans do have their own uh, internal image of, of of our bodies, but what you typically do with a robot and a neural net is that you have to train robotic configuration specific you know hardware for each specific task say you know pick and place or assemble something fold a t shirt make me eggs or whatever. And you typically have to even uh, have to train the robot for a particular environment. So this is really specific, really a lot of, lot of work that goes into each specific thing that you then see the robot to perform. So this initiative aims to change that by putting together lots and lots of data sets. Uh, they say they have about million different robot trials doing you know, individual tasks for 22 different robot types or robot body configurations. Mostly this is, uh, this is uh, robotic arms in different configurations. And they've included about 500 different skills, such as, you know, fold a t-shirt, open a door, call an elevator, these kind of things. And the aim of this uh, initiative is to create this higher level of abstraction for a robot to sort of be able to operate across many different body configurations. And this is then, uh, this is then combined with what you might, this is actually the, the second step that they're, they're working on, but this is being combined with this sort of uh, neocortex-like intelligence that LLM might provide. So say you want to the robot to pick an apple and place it in between a banana and a helicopter, right? So the robot needs to know what a helicopter is, what a banana is, what between means. And this kind of like high-level intelligence comes from a language model and this data scraped off the internet. But then it's combined with these motor skills that come from this multi-body uh, kind of model that's that's capable of, of of performing these tasks 
uh, across many different uh, hardware configurations. And surprisingly enough, uh, there are 34 robotic labs involved in this, in this initiative. And five of them recently did a test where they compared their own in-house best effort, the best solution to, to certain tasks. And they compared it with this, with this new approach, with slightly more universal approach that takes into account different body types. Say, like a human, when you pick an electric drill or you get on a bike, your mental image of your own body sort of extends to the tool or you know, vehicle. And we're able to, to work with that, but robots can't. So this sort of approach makes this much more closer to, 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 to how human brain operates. And the results are, are surprisingly uh, positive. Uh, they say that, uh, finding it in my notes here, uh, sorry, that the multi-robot data improve improve Google's own robot capability uh, by a factor of three. And this is compared to their former best effort, might be combination of algorithms or neural nets. But this kind of abstraction seems to be really helpful in improving, uh, in improving, you know, generalized, generalized uh, robots capabilities and, and combined with them, this high level of, of uh, reasoning produces really, really uh, striking results. That's amazing. That's phenomenal. Not only the fact that they are using the physical robot setups of, of everyone's labs and then to prove that, but the fact that they've gone back to a general approach and that's able to beat their highly trained, bespoke and uh, compete. That's definitely one to watch. Huge thanks to that, Mirak. Awesome. William, over to you. I think CES was on your radar the last couple of days. What have you got for us? Yeah, I think um, as part of that event, one of the really interesting releases, I think, was this device called the Rabbit R1. Um, it's a, a personal assistant. Um, yeah, it's hard to describe. It's a personal assistant. It's a small orange device. It was manufactured in collaboration with a design group called Teenage, Teenage Engineering. Um, that design firm is well known for their audio devices. Um, and they they manufacture and they design and manufacture really um, finely designed uh, audio devices and other computing equipment. In fact, the my PC is a um, a, a small form factor PC of teenage engineering design. Um, they're they're quite well they're quite well regarded. Quite expensive. Well, the um, the computer case wasn't expensive, but <laughs> but their audio devices can be. Um, and this particular assistant is is quite an interesting thing. The startup Rabbit, founded Rabbit.tech, um, starts their keynote by talking about the constraints and challenges around large language models. Uh, LLMs, in particular, can understand intent, they say, but are not particularly good at completing actions. And so. In the AI world, as, as we all know, there's this growing notion of creating an AI agent. So creating an entity that is powered by AI that can perform tasks on your behalf, and you can sort of endow um, an agent with either capabilities and or permissions to perform those tasks. And so the way that this company sets up their kind of agent design is by saying first that um, we need models that are tuned for this notion of going and performing actions. And they call their invention a large action model. And then they wrap that large action model into an operating system. That operating system is designed with a particular uh, performance goal of being quite responsive to you. If you've interacted with ChatGPT or other models, depending on network traffic and whatnot, those responses can take some time to, to come back to you. And so their argument is that having a dedicated operating system, in addition to this dedicated large action model, can create quite fast response times, but also then and when it's in this pocket companion, they call it, this Rabbit R1 device, 
um, you can take it with you and it can start to perform actions on your behalf. Things like playing a song off of Spotify. But then they extend that a bit further. The device itself has a camera, it has uh, what they call an analog scroll wheel, and then a, a push to talk button. And with that vision camera, they've embedded a number of capabilities that we've seen demonstrated by other companies like Google from Google Lens or the Gemini model or other um, open AI based solutions where you can sort of take the camera, point it at your refrigerator and ask it to, you know, make you a dish that's low in calories um, and so forth. Um, and in addition to that, there's ways to interact with the device outside of the device, so um, by email. And also there are capabilities that let you sort of teach the R1 new skills. So they go through a demo of generating uh, imagery through Midjourney and showing you the process of training it um, that way. And so they try to position this as um, an assistant that's complementary to your phone. It doesn't replace the phone, but it starts to get to that place where you can just ask it, I want to go on a trip to London. Can you organize this for me? And then it goes through a series of steps in that workflow uh, to arrange the trip for you. That particular use case I'm, I'm quite interested in. I hate planning trips. It's uh, so tedious to go from app to app, price shopping, uh, finding the right flight. So hopefully there's some, um, there's some actual real uh, uh, value here. Yeah. With this, with the form factor being so minimalistic, it is just, I think, a screen, a camera, and a scroll wheel, although I'm going to have to call it a fidget wheel rather than a scroll wheel. So it definitely is a, from the teenage uh, design world. Um, what, how would you think that trust is embodied in this kind of device? If it does plan the entire trip for you, does it speak it out? How do you know it's researched all the gamut? How do you get that you know, confidence level that this interface is doing all the things for you quote unquote perfectly. Yeah, right now the demo that they show uh, in text on the screen will display the trip that it um, has come up for you. The demo that the CEO does also gives it feedback and says, this looks really um, complicated or it looks as if uh, there's a lot of activity. Can you design a simpler um, uh, trip for me? And I think it brings up an interesting question that you're asking because with these assistants, what are the expectations that we should actually have of them? And I think that there's a kind of uh, interesting dichotomy there when we have a, a certain sets of expectations that perhaps come more from Hollywood and movies than it does from technical reality, where we think that not only is it a machine that the machine that is is powerful and and reasonable mathematically and logically, but perhaps it has some level of infallibility to it. But large language models, I think, have demonstrated that uh, if you train models on human data and you train models in a way that is analogous to, in some ways, to the way that humans learn, that they come up with very human um, uh, human flaws, or they demonstrate quite human flaws. Um, they they seem to lack a, a, a kind of self-awareness, though. Um, there have been studies done that say that um, while they can correct their mistakes, they're not necessarily aware that they've made a mistake until you until you prompt it. And so with a device like this, I think it requires some uh, calibration of expectation somewhat. Maybe um, maybe it's treating it more like a uh, like a human travel assistant, where you can give it feedback, but you sort of trust them enough to take care of those details. Um, maybe a travel assistant that you haven't worked with before. Worked with a few times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so uh, effort number one is going to be with kid gloves, but as you grow to understand it, and it does show that that trust is warranted, you can kind of give it more and more taskings. Thanks, Royan. No problem. Helena, for you, Fast Five. Yeah, sorry, I forgot to put mine in before. So, um, yeah, you'll hear about it for the first time now. I want to talk about a piece of software I tried for the first time this week uh, called Opus Clip. Um, uh, you might know it. It's a AI video editing software. So, essentially... You just plonk in whatever video you have, like from a video podcast or whatever. And what it does is it picks out the best kind of snippets for micro clips. 
um, and pulls those out into its own little videos. So what even just a year ago was like a laborious manual task is now just pretty automated. Uh, so we've been we've been doing this kind of micro clipping for clients uh, for several years, and that was always something that just took so so much time because you have to look for the perfect little segments, you have to pull them out. Then another big um, workload was always uh, getting the transcript and then making sure that the captions were all correct because even you know using Adobe Premiere. Uh, a lot of the times it transcribed the speaker's words wrong, you know, it would turn GIS into chorus or any other creative <laughs> word. Always um, and so I was, yeah, it's, it's pretty like, it, it was really difficult, even with the pro software. And now all of a sudden, all of these AI video clipping tools come out and I was so surprised at how good they are. Um, so it pulled out from a 34 minute video, it pulled out eight or 10 clips um it didn't do a single error in transcribing what was being said so it was a hundred percent uh spot on and the cuts that it took were really really good plus it gave me for each little clip like a little summary of like what's the key message here and it turned that into a headline so i ended up with like eight or ten clips with a headline saying like this is the key message uh, the perfect transcript and the little kind of 50 second video, like which is perfect straight onto, onto LinkedIn or something. And it kind of just made me think about the changing role of, you know, the specialist, I suppose. So, um, yeah, and, and, and geospatial and, and everything. Everyone's always kind of like the specialist providing solutions, right? So, the, so there's always kind of the very generic um terms that they use to describe themselves but i think with the democratization of data and technology that is just happening so so fast and that goes for geospatial data and technology as well the kind of the role of the specialist is changing and you know what used to be a technical role for instance like clipping videos in adobe is not something that just anyone can do i mean it's not a highly technical role um but you know also kind of creating maps um or, or all of these kind of that used to be a profession where the profession was using data and tools to extract information um I don't know where that's heading because of this acceleration um, in these in these AI tools, and I think it's great. I think the de democratization of all of this stuff is great, but I think it also means that we have to kind of reevaluate what our role then is as the operator of these technologies, and you kind of you know perhaps uh, how that whole workspace is changing. And I think it's really interesting um, that things that even just a year ago we thought no no that's you know that's miles away. It's here now, and um, I, I'm just really fascinated by it. Just very keen to see how that evolves, especially in the in the spatial geospatial domain, um, because I mean that has always been a bottleneck in so many large companies. You know, they're sitting on all this geospatial data. Uh, the analysis team is really really small. You know, the engineers need the data. Um, the, the geologists need the data, everyone needs the data, they've got one GIS person and there, there's just a massive bottleneck there. So now with the democratization that's happening, everyone can start doing their own analyses, but they don't necessarily have the background to really fully kind of understand the nuance of what they're doing, I suppose. So we might have some issues creeping in and how do we handle that and how do we walk the balance between it becoming the domain of everyone and still having that specialist expertise and yeah, that's kind of just what I've been pondering um, while being very fascinated and and very thrilled that I can now create my own micro clips so uh, I've seen the tool in use I saw it on your LinkedIn profile I think either just in the last few hours or maybe it was yesterday but it looks fantastic <laughs> but you're right that would have been a massive task it would have been an undertaking and probably someone who, you know, have to sit down and scan and then sync and then get the transcription right. To have that as a, you know, the proverbial red button is phenomenal. It does mean we'll see more of that, but that's probably a good thing because to take the highlights from video, you sort of need to have a way to scrub and raise the highlights. Even if there's, yes, probably a better highlight to the left or right of it, at least you're bringing something to the surface that is, uh, you know, that uh, draw card and yeah. It's now 
hopefully getting it easier to do. I think, yeah, the form factor is going to be huge in the next little bit. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Um, I think I want to try that too. Uh, for my Fast Five this week, I want to roll back a couple of months, but not too much. The last quarter of last year, there was a large model for image um, uh, creation release called GigaGAN. Now, it's a GAN, which is a, a uh, one of the models where two models actually self-score themselves. So one model, the output of one, tied into the input of the next one, goes round and round. Uh, GANs are typically um, fairly focused, so uh, most of our... Uh, uh, image to text and our um, uh, image generation now is not in this mode. But I'm not too worried about the fact that this is a GAN. The bit that I'm most excited about is this mm, middle section of this um, um, model is actually able to do super resolution. And super resolution to me is still just magic source. If you've ever watched any of the CSIs or any of the bad spy movies where they say, you know, enhance, enhance, zoom in, zoom in, and you just do the biggest face palm because, you know, how can four dots become a license plate from deep space? Um, you know, uh, there's more money spent on the CGI in the movies than there is in any CSI division anywhere around the world. Um, this one is obviously making stuff up, and that's a polite way of saying super resolution is not just not just inferring, when you're making, let's say, four pixels into 400, at some point in time, you're not just uh, interpolating color values, you're actually infilling in some level of uh, smartness. But this one's huge. It goes from an output of the image generator of 128 pixels square, which is you know not even a fraction of a megapixel, if you put that in camera terms, up to a 4K by 4K, so 16 megapixels, so 4,000 by 4,000 pixels. That means that every one pixel in the original image turns into roughly a thousand pixels in the output image. And the results are stunning. Um, it really is phenomenal how, it really is like looking at a blurry image. You wake up first in the morning or you haven't had your right, uh, uh, the coffee hasn't hit the bloodstream just yet. And you're seeing something that you can kind of vaguely make out. There might be a, a hair or a fold in someone's shirt or something like that. And suddenly when you do the super resolution, there's not just the fold or the hair, but there's levels of details that simply were not there, yet they were made up to a level that is uh, believable. So my open question to the team that we'll probably tackle in the deep dive in a few minutes is, um, are, are these kind of models making stuff up just to satisfy us, the humans who are in the loop and to say, yep, that was good, nope, that was bad, try again? Or do they have some level of uh, semantic understanding of objects and depth and, you know, how hair does look and how hair does fall over a shoulder or how, you know, scales on a turtle um, actually comes to fruition? Because it is using its resources of, I guess, backwards training. It probably started with the 4,000 by 4,000 images. They downsampled them down to the tiny ones and then reversed the process, said, right, best score for trying to get from small image to large image wins go for a couple of million billion years of CPU time. So it's my question, open question, which I think yeah we will tackle soon is, you know, by what level is this magic? By what level is this making stuff up? By what level is this starting to be the understandings of there's enough encoded within this model to actually understand going from 20 pixels to 2000 pixels, it can actually make stuff up reliably. And by all means, the uh, um, uh, the pictures there on the website are phenomenal going from the tiniest to the largest files. It is just amazing how big a 4,000 by 4,000, I mean, most people's HD screens or 4K screens, it's bigger than, it's a square 4K screen. It's massive. Um, so going from such a postage stamp to like a movie poster, just out of this world for someone like me who was playing with Photoshop back in the early 90s. <laughs> um, when a one megapixel image would wipe out your computer. Alrighty team, we might pause there. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back with Deep Dive. Deep Dive. Okay, welcome back. William, I'm going to hand it over to you a little bit, if that's all right. Um, apparently, you have just started your new uh, lecture season on spatial AI. By the sound of it, this does feel like this is lecture number, well, we're getting a preview of a forthcoming lecture. Is that kind of correct? Yes, that's right. Our first class was yesterday. Students seem interested. It's uh, indeed a course called Spatial AI. 
It is being taught at the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation at Columbia University. And it's uh, part of the computation sequence, but it's intended to kind of bridge this gap between modern artificial intelligence techniques, which, as we all know, are all the rage now, and the challenges that uh, designers of space, particularly architects and urbanists, encounter in their practice. The, the probe for, and prompt for the students is, uh, how can we research together ways of using large language models and multimodal models um, in a way that, that helps our spatial design propositions, helps us understand space, model space, and make decisions, uh, not only for the space itself and perhaps the, the people that are constructing buildings and cities, but also for the inhabitants of those spaces eventually. Um, and I think architectural design in particular is quite an interesting realm for this because architects don't, um, don't actually get a chance to design buildings with buildings. Um, they design buildings with representations of the materials that go into buildings. And even one more step removed is the experience that the inhabitants of those buildings have. So there's almost a translation of three different media that we have to go through. Um, and so it's, it's, an interesting, um, it's an interesting area. The computation sequence in most architecture schools really focus on tools. They focus on um, building information modeling, uh, uh, there are some innovative tools like um, visual programming editors, one called Grasshopper that's quite popular. And, um, but this, this tries to take us, this course tries to take a slightly different approach. We're going to start off by um, asking two key critical questions. One, what is space? And two, what is artificial intelligence? And then can we uh, work together to see how they can um, bolster each other. Um, and so the, the lecture coming up is the What is Space lecture. Um, it's been a, uh, an interesting philosophical question for over 2,000 years, at least in Western thought. Um, everything from the ancient Greek concept of topos to the Japanese concept of tokoro and ma. Um, there are architectural concepts of public and private, secular and sacred, inside, outside, and threshold, and even geographers' concepts like image space and, and place space. So um, part, of our, part of our journey together to start is to unpack those concepts and then use large language models as, a, as an assistant um, in that investigation. So what's the current state of a large language model to actually be able to do more than, I mean, you know, the uh, shorthand, which is a neat way to, uh, to talk about a uh, large language model, is a text calculator. Merrick said before, you know, it can predict the next word, and when it does that reliably for so many tokens, for so many thousands of words, it looks like magic and it carries on. Um, what is the state of large language models right now with being able to have any concept of uh, depth, space, orientation, um, coming back to the fast five, is it is it pseudo? Is it magic? Or are we starting to get those nuggets of truth coming through? Yes, that is um, that is the core of the question. I think that we're going to probe uh, in the course. And what I think prompted those sorts of questions for me was um, what you're like what you what you're also hinting at. Large language models um, are not rem are, are remarkable um, for their sort of impression of a huge breadth of knowledge uh, and also mirroring understanding what we're saying like um, when 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 google first became big um, that we we all had to learn how to speak google we all had to learn about keywords and how to compose them and there were certain things that you couldn't ask google unless a website had already asked the question in the same way and had answered it so um, thing and so like what are and large language models now give us that ability like you can especially when you're in a situation like what is that movie that had this character where someone said this and the situation was like that and like you couldn't quite remember it and 
Um, a question like that is is really difficult with a search engine, but quite delightful to do with a, a large language model like ChatGPT. Um, but then finally, it's it has this this ability. Um, maybe I'll say, uh, for the sake of argument, it seems to it seems to mimic or mirror uh, the ability to reason. And so large language models are, are benchmarked on standardized tests, for example, like in the US, the law school admissions test. It has an analytical section where um, there are questions like, um, you know, there are five people sitting around a table and Joe doesn't like sitting next to Madeline and, um, you know, Albert always likes sitting next to Cheryl. And so like, then it asks, you ask questions about different types of arrangements. And I think that actually starts to hint at this idea of using an LLM to reason about space. And so that's, uh, that's something that I think is, is really fascinating. And we saw some of those hints at it with the agility robotics example from two weeks ago from episode one. And so I'm, I guess I'm really curious about um, what other folks think about the, that sort of potential to reason about spatial configuration? Does it understand above, below, between, and, and so forth? Yeah, Merrick, the uh, link that you gave us, uh, the uh, robot brain being a generalist now, it, it is putting forward that it, it, it has the topics and the concepts of between, above, move X to Y. Um, by all means, does that sort of um, have the same uh, capability and the same uh, option for growth? in this early stage i think i think i think this is related and i, I mean i have more questions than answers to be to be frank but <laughs> uh, it, it it seems like large language models can generate meaningful text even when there is no uh understanding of the of the subject and inherently they are trained to please the human prompter right the, the human element and and i'm thinking like like especially when it comes to 3d space that we evolved to live in so we have really deep understanding of, of, of spatial concepts even there are interesting things that our brain does that that many people aren't aware of like the people who compete in in all sorts of memory exercises memorize you know hundreds of digits of, of, of pi they often or most commonly used technique called memory palaces, which means that you imagine a 3D space that you're familiar with, and you just place your, 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 your clues in that space, and then you follow a path in that space, and then you just, just read it sequentially as you would be traversing that space. And this is really easy for us to do, but I would argue that a language model, as we see them today, have no, has, has no concept of that. So it may generate something that to us seems like it makes sense. It's kind of like, yeah, this is what a human would say. But I'm imagining uh, sort of a parallel example. Like imagine you're born blind and you've been reading your whole life about the, you know, the best visual art that, that humans have produced. And you can describe Van Gogh's Starry Night with really excruciating detail, but you have no concept of of how it feels or what it's about or what it's, you know, how it came to be. So that, that's sort of where I'm sort of philosophically when thinking about, about these kind of technologies and how that translates to, to, to 3d space. If that makes any sense, it's, you know, really vague and <laughs> anyway, so, so, so when it, when it comes to like actually, actually implementing something that, that allows machines to understand the, the space around us, I think there need to be some sort of, extra uh extra layers that provide this kind of capability and that can sort of help you know machine to, to to sort of make sense of, of of space and maybe in like a computer game scenario this is kind of closer than you know language model might be today um maybe your uh npc in you know few years down from here, you know, may have really good spatial understanding of, of their own environment. And that sort of generates really interesting behaviors. There have been experiments with people hooking Minecraft to large language models. 
And I believe that that sense of space and what you can actually do with that space and where's your resources, where's your danger, you know, where's your friends and, you know, that sort of defines how you navigate around that space and how you perceive it. And that maybe somehow builds some understanding of, of the space, the way we perceive it. That's, that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, I think one of the problems is that, you know, it hasn't really even been unanimously sorted on a human level, you know, so so there's still so much um, human debate about place and space and, and what constitutes each. And, uh, you know, not only is there, you know, literature in, in like English that goes back, uh, you know, centuries, it's the same in, in every other culture and every other language. And I think what large language models might be able to to do is to help us bring a lot of that together. So I know, for instance, that there is a lot of German research into the space place concept, um, but it's completely not ever brought into the English research of the space place concept because it's simply not the same people uh, who have understanding, uh, you know, of the language even to to then investigate. Um, and so I feel like there is probably a lot that has been a lot of different philosophical angles, a lot of different approaches across different languages that hasn't necessarily been uh, brought together. So I think there's probably quite a lot of disparate um, reasoning going on and a lot of disparate d- definitions. And potentially, you know, I've just... Um, done a quick um chat gpt and asked it to to tell me about like the different um the different place concepts in different languages and it actually has gone and you know looked into literature in other languages and then i asked it to explain it to me in those other languages um because i also speak german so i understand and and it's given me a, like a pretty accurate um output on that so uh, it seems to be competent across um, across all that kind of stuff. So I think what we can accelerate is like as humans, our understanding of the state of the art so that we're not kind of uh, when we're developing concepts and when we're kind of doing doing research that we're not kind of reinventing the wheel of something that has been solved in a different discipline or in a different language, um, but that we really do now have access to the world's knowledge basically at our fingertips and it's not subject to those same barriers. So I find that a really, um, really promising approach to then maybe getting some progress on the actual space place definition before expecting the language model itself to kind of understand and and teach robots to reason, you know? In my mind, it's been uh, 12 months almost to the day since the uh, uh, GPT hit the mainstream public. Everyone started using it and it was massive. Yes, it had a few years before that, but it was, um, you know, this this is the time where it's uh, taken off in leaps and bounds. Um, but already now, I think there's a move coming from one acronym to another, going from large language models, LLMs, to multimodal is sort of the approach of uh, trying to fold in more of that spatial, more of that depth knowledge. Um, I guess there's a general trend, which I don't know whether this acronym will survive, but general world models. GWMs by by adding more than just 2D images and I mean video reproduction is good but it's kind of just a sequence of 2D images going into that depth perception plus uh, the object recognition is a potential for large language models to add on that multimodal factor um, I, I've seen fledgling ideas of those and uh, Mirik's link uh, today was certainly another one in that in that step where it's got the ability to reason. But I guess coming back to large language models, I would be really keen to find out, uh, William, what your thoughts are about how it can be extended or even how you can prompt it to start to tease out those um, ideas of above, behind, go, you know, go north, those kind of things. Yeah, totally. And those are the kinds of experiments we want to run in the class. I think that, um, again, the uh, analytic questions on some of the standardized tests really uh, point to those opportunities from a from an architectural perspective i think it's um it's an interesting profession because most of what you see in terms of spatial design are the outputs of the kind of artistic outputs of the architect so the renderings the models 
um, the kind of uh, s creative sketches that happen early on in, in schematic design. But there's an awful lot of language that's written um, about buildings. Um, there's the source material like building codes and zoning codes. Those are all, those are all written, um, aside from the diagrams that accompany most of the text. There is a specification that's written along with the building and significant buildings. With significant buildings, those, build, those specifications can be on the order of thousands or tens of thousands of pages of written documents about what materials are used, where are they positioned, and so on and so forth. And I think uh, in a similar way, um, fiction writing describes space and place in very interesting ways. And so those are probably some of the source material that sort of uh, introduce the opportunity to reason spatially with an LLM. But I think what, you're, what we're all hinting at here as well is, is, is absolutely right. I think where the, where the real experiments happen are when we enter that multimodal space where we can get something that is LLM-like um, interacting with something that is, that is not necessarily written language. And so we, we ran one of these experiments in class yesterday where we have a... Uh, Merrick mentioned a gaming engine. We have a we have a physics engine hooked up to GPT-4 through OpenAI's API, and you can ask it things like, add a cube to the space, um, add cubes to the space in a grid pattern, um, make uh, add some boxes that are twice as long as they are wide, and drop them on uh, the ground plane, things like that. And it and it works out of the box. the uh, The context prompt is is very simple. It just says, "You're an assistant that is." Um, helping me manage a space full of objects. Um, and then uh, there's, a, there's a function you can add to that that is a query function. Um, so you can say, describe the space to me. And the gaming engine returns a list of objects, their sizes, and their um, centroids, their center points. And it can actually say, like, there's a cluster of, of boxes over here that seem randomly arranged, and then there's one over in the corner. Um, so that's really fascinating, I think, to be able to give it kind of data formatted as a as a JSON, as a yeah. as a JavaScript object, it's and reason about it. Correct, yeah. but to give it a summary and to give it that feel of okay, well then I won't go in front of the pile of boxes. That seems dangerous. I'll walk around the back where there's only one. But to be able to Definitely. make those decisions is is then that conversation of understanding of well three dimensional. Brilliant. Yeah, exactly. I think the, the, the real place we want to get is what Mirik had also um, hinted at early on in the, in the, in the podcast where, um, Mirik, you mentioned uh, getting to a higher level of abstraction. So mm -hmm. uh, instead of just saying add a box, can you say something like bound this space, like um, create a boundary so that balls can't roll out of this particular zone? And it's um, it it doesn't get that right very often. It will only it only positions the walls uh, or like boxes that it interprets as walls, um, maybe one out of every ten times. And it's uh, it's really interesting. It doesn't really understand solidity either. Sometimes it will just create one large cube around the whole ground plane and say, "I did mm -hmm. it for you." Did what you asked. Um, yep. Yeah. Exactly. Um. But finally, I think uh, one interesting thing about ChatGPT, I, did, I ran a test myself. I uploaded a, uh, just now, I uploaded a, an image of a chessboard with three pawns that had been moved and asked it to describe the chess opening. And it said, um, this is, this, the chess opening depicted in the image is known as the center game, characterized mm -hmm. by these moves. And I stumbled across an article the other day that was talking about how strong GPT-4 is as a chess player. And the hypothesis is around its ability to reason about chess moves, which I, I, would, I would argue chess is a, is a form of space, or in, in like games are a form of space in some way. Um, it, the hypothesis is, is that it was actually perhaps trained on textual descriptions of chess games. And so it actually sees the notation and was trained against the notation. And so is that sufficient to actually gain enough of an understanding of space 
um, at least in that particular setting. Um, uh, I'm not sure. It's certainly an interesting exercise to go through to see um, to see what they can do. Then how do we compare space to place? Um, um, Helena, it's definitely a concept that comes into things like uh, location intelligence is a phrase that's used a lot. It has the concept of where I am and what can I do? So it obviously needs to come out of a web browser from a web server somewhere and be identified locally to the user. Is, is that a concept that is also on the rise within models and within, I guess, on hand uh, devices? So I do know that, um, like, I mean, as, as a geographer, and this is very different, I suppose, to the architecture um, concept or, you know, even even saying that a chess uh, or, ga or games are spatial, like in the, in the geographic world, I suppose, uh, I don't even know, I don't even know what that would be in the geographic world, but we, I suppose, have a bit, a bit of a broader distinction between space and place, whereas like space is a coordinate on the Earth's surface. And so you could quite easily tell a computer spatial stuff like that, that's what the entire premise of GIS is right space is translated into zeros and ones all the layers you've got there you can kind of layer everything on top of each other it's all kind of anchored to a location um, and you can analyze stuff about that location what becomes difficult in GIS is when you're kind of talking about human phenomena and this is where the place concept comes in because it's all good and well to that you know everything objectively is spatial uh, but things matter to people differently based on places people think in terms of places they don't say um, you know my address is and then list off the coordinates they tell you I live in, and I'll name a suburb or something. And and so even suburbs are kind of like, the it's a fuzzy delineation, but people think not really in terms of suburbs. They think more granular. They think in terms of neighborhoods um, and, and kind of places. And I guess coming back to what you said at the beginning, William, with like with the, the architects and designing places that matter to people and, and where people perceive like a, a good experience, that links back to that geographic concept of place because when we're designing a city or you know more granular in that case a building um you kind of want to be thinking about well what what does this place offer in terms of experience how do people experience this place and that's like far more subjective than what GIS can can often give us and so we've we're, we're moving more towards this placial um, kind of analysis mode in, in GIS and at least in the kind of work I'm doing with quality of life um, more in like this GI science field we're looking more at places but it still hasn't really been solved the fact that you can't neatly you know put a place into zeros and ones and and geocode it into it into a GIS you like a place is just inherently a human thing so I guess that's what I was kind of getting at before with the concept itself hasn't been understood enough by humans to teach it to a computer. And so the AI, I don't think, can understand a concept that humans haven't understood unless they can have access to far more, you know, of the body of knowledge than any single human or group of humans, or, or that there just hasn't been enough cross-collaboration between all these schools of thoughts, all these disciplines, all these cultures, all these languages, whereas the AI can probably pull all that together in a lot more coherent way and maybe we can start to iterate closer to an actual understanding of what makes a place um, and, and, you know, what's important in terms of making a place. And then you can start thinking in terms of fuzzy boundaries and whatnot um, to, to actually delineate that. But then I guess it's like, is, that even, is it even important to delineate a place or do we need to kind of just shift our entire thinking around the questions we're asking and why we're asking them and and you know kind of I guess get more granular and understand that some things are just subjective and and on a human level and can't necessarily um you know neatly be projected into GIS so I mean I started my PhD with the idea that I would um delineate places on a map but I don't really think that that's going to happen anymore because I don't actually, from from the data I gathered and from the research I did and from the analyses I did and from as far as I got, I kind of got to the place where I understood 
that it's A, not meaningful and B, not possible. And so now I'm working more towards understanding place itself rather than trying to map it if you if you will so and i think llms can be important in that regard so just to circle back to that the perils of doing a long-running research project where either your own data reveals some movements or the field catches up with you well look one and all thanks so much for that chat we am looking forward to um uh, you know, uh, being involved in your course. We're happy to be your um, uh, guinea pigs, your test bunnies anytime at all. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about a topic of spatial UX. And Merrick, I'm going to dob you in quite a bit here. It's been, I think, well over a year since you released your video on augmented robotality. When was that video released on uh, YouTube? Oh, that was actually two years ago. Two years. Okay. Yes, well, that, gonna... is, that is quite related. I'm going to ask for a bit of a um, an update, um, whether it's a fresh link or at least to uh, describe to us the perils you've gone through in the last two years of that version, that line in the sand, and how your definition of spatial uh, interfaces have updated. To everyone else, would love our feedback on both Merrick's work. We can be uh, critics here with uh, scorecards, but more the point, would love to explore all the ways that get us out of these two-dimensional worlds that we're living in. So. From me and from all of you, thank you so much for your time today. We'll catch you next week. If you'd like more news and insights about spatial AI or have a story or interesting topic you'd like us to cover, reach out to us. Better yet, come and join the community at Spatial. All the links are in the show notes.